This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There's a, a large discussion about, will we see inflation this year? And what will that mean for uh, interest rates and, and mortgage interest rates? But, you know, if you had to pick one commodity right now that kind of sums up where we are for the housing sector and the overall economy, it really is lumber. Uh, lumber prices are up 200% year over year. It's adding $24,000 to the typical newly built home, which is about 2,600 square feet. And let's not forget multifamily and the, the rental side of the sector. It's adding probably about $9,000 to the typical apartment as well. Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard a quote from today's guest, Robert Dietz, the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Economics and Housing Policy for the National Association of Home Builders. In today's episode, our hosts Sarah Wheeler and Dietz discuss home building trends across the country, as well as housing policy and the budding market for building to rent. As always, thank you to our sponsor, USMI. And here's episode 13 of season five of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome everyone, this is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Robert Dietz, the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President for Economics and Housing Policy for the National Association of Home Builders. Robert has published academic research on the benefits of home ownership, federal tax policy, and other housing issues, and has testified before Congress on real estate policy issues. He is often cited on housing and economic issues in major media outlets, and prior to joining NAHB in 2005, Robert worked as an economist for the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, where he was the committee's real estate expert. Robert, you've been a guest before here on Housing News, and we're delighted to have you back. Welcome. It's great to be back. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, especially when right now one of the hottest topics is right in your wheelhouse, which is inventory, right? So we had housing starts jump up in March with single family housing starts up 15.3%, right, over the month. And, uh, you know, we were up 37% from a year ago, but, you know, we had COVID this time last year. So I'd love to just get your opinion on housing starts right now. Yeah, housing starts at the beginning of 2021 have actually come in a little stronger than we expected. Um, we use uh, our, our builder confidence measure, the NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Market Index, as a way of tracking where uh, housing construction is going in the near term. It peaked at a level of 90 on a 100-point scale back in November with really, really strong buyer traffic numbers. Those numbers, of course, being driven by all the events that we saw in 2020, historically low interest rates, and of course, a, a just a, a you know a really tight resale market, which is driving demand to new construction. Since that point in November, builder confidence has softened. It, it came in at a level of 83 uh, here in April. Uh, it's still strong rating. It's above a 50, which is indicating growth in construction. And what we expected at the start of the year was 
growth, but maybe at a little slower growth rates because of some of the challenges the industry faces. But the rate of construction has, has continued to come in strong. So I think there's an expectation that the market is, is really undersupplied. Uh, the building industry is doing everything it can to add that much needed inventory. But we are going to face some challenges here in 2021 as that pace of construction continues. Well, let's talk about some of those challenges. Um, you know, COVID uh, presented a number of challenges for a lot of industries, but from a supply, you know, just from your building supply issues and things like that, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that's being faced by policymakers and the Federal Reserve. There's a, a large discussion about will we see inflation this year and what will that mean for uh, interest rates and, and mortgage interest rates. But, you know, if you had to pick one commodity right now that kind of sums up where we are for the housing sector and the overall economy, it really is lumber. Uh, lumber prices are up 200% year over year. It's adding $24,000 to the typical newly built home, which is about 2,600 square feet. And let's not forget multifamily and the, the rental side of the sector. It's adding probably about $9,000 to the typical apartment as well. So lumber is used in residential construction, non-residential construction. It's in short supply because we're not producing enough domestically. We saw a little bit of a, uh, a downward dip in the level of sawmill production in the third quarter of last year. The good news, uh, it's it's not all we need, but it's it's moving in the right direction. We saw by the end of the year, sawmill production was at about a 13-year high. And yes, I, I talked about lumber, but it really is all building materials that are in, in really tight supply. So you talk to a builder, you talk to a modeler, you talk to someone that's at a... Uh, you know, a home improvement store or a lumber yard, they'll tell you a lot of these materials. Uh, we're just simply, we don't have access to enough of them right now. And it runs from everything from structural lumber down to literally the nuts and bolts that go into building a home. So why, why is that? You know, um, was it because um, just the global supply chain or, you know, walk us through why those things are in such short supply? Yeah, so outside of the, the lumber sector, it really is, it's it's what we're seeing globally. It's that the supply chains are heavily disrupted. I mean, if you're looking for a metaphor, there was no better metaphor than that container ship that got uh, trapped in the Suez Canal. Uh, that was affecting European supplies in a direct way. It was a great metaphor for where we are right now. Um, and so, yeah, the global supply chains are disrupted. And then in individual material sectors like lumber, for example, we're not producing enough demand domestically given the increase in housing demand. And it's not just new construction, but remodeling as well. I think we know the changes that took place in 2020, which was a renewed focus on home. And so it wasn't just builders investing in housing by constructing new housing for the sector, but the fact that individual homeowners uh, were improving their homes. And so that created this uh, you know, unexpected, at least from the, the perspective of the end of 2019, an unexpected demand increase for these building materials. And it's just going to take a little bit of time to, to get back up to pace. This, by the way, connects to that broader issue of the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. Chairman Powell has talked about the fact that we expect to see an increase in inflation in 2021 as the economy reopens and we're gonna have the best year for GDP growth since 1984. The, the question from a policy perspective is, are these price challenges temporary or are they permanent? Uh, 
And so the hope is that as we get additional building materials in the home building space and as the, the rest of the inputs for the overall economy begin to step up, that those inflationary pressures will prove to be temporary and thus we are, we'll be able to keep monetary policy in an easing condition as labor markets heal over the next year or two. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I never thought that I would uh, become a lumber nerd like I have this year. <laughs> we're just around here at Housing Wire. We, we, we watch it. We're reading about it. We're following people on Twitter about it. It's just very interesting and not something I knew anything about before this last year. Same here. I, I actually wish I had taken less tax law. My background is really <laughs> in tax and economics and, and more in, in wood products. You know, it's just understanding softwood lumber versus hardwood lumber. What goes into the frame of a home versus the flooring of a home or kitchen cabinets. Uh, it's, it's an interesting space. And of course, this is where the economy is focused. We have to remember housing was that bright spot for the economy in 2020. The rest of the economy is beginning to pick up speed. And unfortunately, we're going to see some of the consequences in that in terms of these higher material costs and then the fact that uh, interest rates will be trending higher over the next year or two. How does how does a home builder um, figure that out? So, you know, lumber went up, adds $24,000 to the price of a house. Well, you contracted on that house. How are how do they account for these really wildly big changes in in, in material prices? It varies builder by builder, by size, by type of home being built. Uh, you know, you, you, we do surveys of the industry. Uh, some builders are including price escalation clauses. Uh, a limited number of builders do uh, a situation where the builder and the home buyer essentially share in some of the unexpected growth in material costs. And then we, we expect a certain number of builders are literally throttling sales regulating the number of sales that they enter into to make sure that that production chain for their own company can deliver the homes that have been contracted for sale. So it's a limiting factor. Uh, I think overall from the economics of the industry, we know the home building industry is going to expand this year. It's going to be the best year for single family output since the Great Recession, but new home prices are going to have to rise. Uh, you know, we saw single digit gains last year. I think that will continue this year uh, to, to cover the fact that the, the input costs are higher. And let's not forget, you know, we're talking about building materials, but we still have challenges in a skilled labor shortage in terms of the middle skills crisis. We have policy reform that needs to take place in terms of zoning improvements to allow more missing middle uh, low density, single lot uh, or single family housing for entry level buyers, these kinds of policy changes that will allow us to add that that incredibly needed inventory for the market right now. You know, so much, so much of I have comments on everything you just said. So, you know, what we're hearing as we as we call around for different markets is exactly what you said, that home builders are like, you know, they're not even taking they, they might be a year out and they're like, you know, putting the brakes on because who, who knows what that looks like a year out. Um, and and then the other thing was on the skilled labor force, you know, what do you, what do you see? What happened last year, and and where do those people go? Are they coming back? You know, what are you seeing on that? There's a really interesting divide within the construction industry right now, and I think it proves what we've been saying about the skilled labor shortage within the residential building space. Last year, you saw in residential construction, home building, apartment development, and remodeling, the industry actually added 90,000 net jobs. In other words, 
we're one of the few sectors that ended the year with a larger workforce than it started with. And in the period of time where jobs overall were down about 6%. So um, essentially the, the residential construction sector took advantage of the fact that there were people looking for work uh, from other sectors and, and then brought them in. Non-residential construction, so outside of housing, a little bit different story. They're still down in terms of employment. But when you consider the construction industry as a whole, we're short two to 300,000 construction workers. And so we've got this long-term challenge. It's, it's partly due to demographics. It's due to the fact that uh, from high schools, we send more people to four-year colleges. And I think we, we have a broader policy discussion that we have to take place of, are we doing the right thing by building up student loan debt, sending people to four-year institutions where the graduation rate's only about 60% over five years? And I say this as someone married to a, a college professor, so I you know, kind of want to step carefully here. But you know, community colleges and trade schools are the hidden gem of the education system. And there are jobs in demand, not just in construction, but manufacturing, transportation, energy, green energy, that the middle skills. And that's really where we need to make that human capital capital investment in the years ahead. Yeah, super interesting. You know, you talked a little bit about housing policy there on different parts. Um, you know, when we we saw a couple years ago when California changed the law from a state level to allow um, accessory dwelling units and, and what that has done in that state, do you see that taking off in different places? Do you see that as the future, like states coming in and, and sort of overriding for, for things like that? Yeah, I think that's one way that you can carrot and stick approach, make the necessary changes at the, the, the zoning rule level. ADUs are a great example. We have a housing deficit. You know, Freddie Mac just put out some great estimates, a single digit million number in terms of the shortage for single family housing. And Freddie Mac also put out a great estimate that we have 1.4 million ADUs. Well, ADUs are coming in the system because it was harder to build that missing middle. It was harder to build uh, multifamily and single family. I don't think necessarily ADUs represent a permanent solution, you know, for that, that perspective forming household that's looking for a small single family structure and ADU is not a great uh, substitute, but it's a way of adding supply in a supply start market. And I think what we'll see is states go through in terms of what their market needs. Some places it may be ADUs. In other places, it may be let's try to fight exclusionary zoning. Let's do small lot, single family detached housing, or, or in some cases, let's transform retail spaces that are going to be vacant because we're not using as much and turn them into residential uh, developments, places with townhouses, with low-rise multifamily. So I think that urban village concept is something we're going to see, and it's going to present a, a great redevelopment opportunity for the construction industry, and then, of course, all the, the stakeholders that finance and supply that kind of construction. Where do you see, is there a part of the country that you're like, wow, they're really, um, they're close to either innovating or they are innovating, or, or is there a part of the country that you think is, is maybe leading the way on this? Well, I think in the Northeast, you do see some of this redevelopment type opportunities. I think that's a, just a function of the kind of the housing stock that's in place and the limits based on geography of where building can take place. But the geography story right now in terms of housing and home construction is really interesting because, of course, you have the traditional areas where lots of home building takes place. You know, the top two markets in the country are Dallas and Houston. You've got Austin in the, in the top five. So Texas and the Southeast, lots of population growth. 
The mountain states continue to grow uh, because of affordability. But in 2020, you also saw places, and I, I say this as a native Midwesterner, places in the Midwest, Columbus, Indianapolis, Kansas City, that had really great growth rates in terms of single family construction. Why? Well, because home households and even some businesses are voting with their feet and moving to some affordable markets. And I think that's a great opportunity for markets that have seen a little more flat level type population growth conditions and could see some some revitalization and additional growth. You know, uh, we've been doing a series on on some of those like secondary markets that you wouldn't think would be hot that are super hot right now. And, and there are five of those in Idaho. One of them is Pocatello, Idaho, which I only knew because my sister's husband at one point was getting a job there. I was like, where is that? And then it popped up on this list. And I was like, what? What is going on? Boise, if you look at the housing stock there from 10 years ago to today, it's, it's amazing. And affordability conditions in a, in a metro like Boise have actually gone down because prices are rising faster than local incomes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, some of these mountain state and, and markets, Utah, northern Colorado, uh, they're essentially benefiting from, unfortunately, some of the, uh, you know, more challenging affordability conditions that you see along the West Coast. So I think there's a real opportunity. I think uh, buyers and renters are more empowered because of a partial persistence of telecommuting. I think that's going to continue out of this. You know, we'll see more workers, maybe a third of the American workforce work under a three two two model of three days in the office, two days at home. And that means the weekly commute, when you add it up, is going to be smaller. And so people can drive further to qualify, and that's going to present additional opportunities for people to get more bang for their buck, whether they're renting or buying. And here's a quick word from our sponsor. Since 1957, the private mortgage insurance industry has enabled affordable, low down payment home ownership for more than 33 million people. MI bridges the down payment gap, so low to moderate income borrowers may access home ownership sooner while protecting taxpayers from mortgage credit risk. Visit www.usmi.org to learn more. You know, we, we talked about uh, materials and traditional building materials. Obviously, you know, wood, wood takes a long time. Uh, lumber is expensive. And so there's always this talk about, you know, what about these uh, non-traditional building materials and building methods, you know, like having it factory built and shipped and put up. But I guess my question is, when I look into those, it always seems like it's not the traditional builder. So is there an appetite among, you know, the home builders that you work with to really look at some of these alternatives, or is it just right now still pretty fringe? Well, so necessity is the mother of invention. And I think the fact that home prices or material prices have increased so much, there's a, 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 a demand for innovation. I think that's something we're going to see, you know, when you go to the trade shows over the next year or two, like the International Builders Show in 2022, you're going to see new products, you're going to see new construction techniques. But you use the word fringe, you know, I'd say maybe the shares of some of these things are quite small. So, for example, in framing, 90% of single family homes are wood framed. 9% are concrete framed, most of those in the southeast because of hurricane codes, and a little less than 1% are steel framed. But when lumber prices are as high as they are, you know, the alternative framing methods, maybe it's 3D printing, you know, the investigations are taking place. So you get some justification for doing that research. 
That said, as you, as you mentioned, you know, for example, uh, modular and panelized construction, factory built, um, shares tend to be pretty small. In fact, 3% are systems built. In other words, uh, built in, in the factory in terms of, of panels and frames. Um, but I think over the next uh, two to three years, you're going to see some of those shares increase due to the fact that the opportunity costs have changed with an elevated level of, of lumber pricing. So this is a great time to be in the space in terms of building materials. You know, if you can, you can pitch a product that will save time in terms of construction labor at the work site, or it can provide a way to provide additional uh, material, I think builders and remodelers are going to take a second look. That's great. Um, so I live in a pretty new um, community that is built completely traditionally. It has traditional builders. Uh, but I wonder if you had some non-traditional things come in there, what does that do? Is there acceptance among people living in a traditional community to have like, you know, a modular home or to have like a 3D printed home or some of these things you talk about, you know, because we know 3D printed homes comes up anytime we talk about this. But I think there's only one community or two communities in the entire nation that have a community of those homes. You can build one, you know, on, on a lot somewhere, but I just don't see the, the large uptick yet. Yeah, 3D printing, I think, is is not quite ready for prime time. It's been interesting to see some of the developments there. You know, a uh, two-story example that's 3D printed on the first floor, but the second floor is traditional wood framed, as is uh, the roofing and the trusses. But when it comes to modular and panelized construction, you know, if, if you're talking about a home that's sold on a lot, that's owned and is has a traditional foundation, you would not be able to tell the difference between that kind of home and a more traditional site-built uh, type structure. Uh, manufactured housing is a slightly different story. We still have about 100,000 units there. The, the ownership of the land's a little bit different, but I think with modular and panelized, you're gonna see an increase, but it's gonna be regionally concentrated because you need economies of scale in terms of the delivery of that kind of housing. 3D printing, it's, it's a little bit ways out there, but again, you know, when you've, you've got really high demand and, and the pricing's become difficult, uh, you're going to see the uh, the industry innovate out of necessity. You know, th this year everyone talked about. You know, we we did see a, a renewed focus on home and on space in the home. So, what are you guys seeing as far as like the the average square foot of a of a house? Is it going up? Is it going down? What what happened over the last year? Yes, yeah, so for the last four or five years, new home size was falling. And it was falling for a good reason, by the way. Though on a median basis, it was the attempt of the industry to add that really needed entry-level uh, type smaller housing. But right now in 2020, according to the data, we saw new home size level off after those declines. And my expectation, and it's consistent with the survey data and the consumer preference data, 2021 and 2022 are going to see increases and new home size. In fact, the top feature in the consumer preference data that we, we collect in terms of changes in buyer preferences was an increase in demand for home office space. Uh, and not just a single home office, in some cases two, or at least a, an additional room that can be both a media game room and, and a home office. So that requires additional space. And look, you know, if you think about it from an aggregate economics point of view, we're taking activity that used to occur in commercial real estate and it's occurring now in residential real estate. And so that requires a larger capital stock, which means more 
or housing. So I think we're going to see some of these design changes continue. We're also seeing growth in, in multi-generational housing. I think that's also consistent with a more diverse population in the United States. And so this is an exciting time for housing. It seems like it's been exciting for the last 15 years or so, but uh, I think you're going to see a considerable amount of change, whether it's the geography, building methods, or the kinds of housing and, and their design being put in place. I love that. Um, you know, when we when we built our house, um, I got the home office and, you know, at the time it was like, eh, okay, I got the home office, you know, and I've never been so happy for that choice over the last year. My, my husband got a media room. I was like, okay, then I get the office. And I thought, oh, that'll be a fun thing. And it was like, oh yeah, I, I won out on that one. And I, and to your point of just like, spending more time at home. And of course, we, we all hope that, you know, kids can be back in school in the fall and that's not going to be a thing. But when you have everybody in the house at home all day long, all the time, it really does, you know, it, it just, it changes the whole dynamic as opposed to we've all been somewhere all day. Now we're coming home. It's just a different thing. Right. And, and the push and pull there, I think is evident, which is as people return to the office, there's definitely going to be a demand for that in terms of the culture of business operations. But, you know, there is that upside in terms of flexibility of schedule and allowing workers to pick and choose when they, they commute. And that's going to require some additional space in the home. You know, um, one of the stories that we've been talking about, um, you mentioned Austin being a huge uh, hub and that's, you know, we think it might be the hottest market in the whole country just from a jobs standpoint, um, you know, where a lot of, a lot of these markets are hot because people are going to be working remote from there, but Austin, I mean, the jobs are there They and they continue to go there. So um, I'm not far from Austin um, here and, you know, it's had infrastructure issues for 25 years. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that, I, I mean, they, they were anti-growth for a while, so they didn't want to build the infrastructure, the roads, the, you know, to really handle this. So it's going to be interesting. But um, one thing that we heard even just this week was the kind of things that you would normally see in like the Bay Area of California uh, are happening in Austin, where I um, a real estate agent told me that um, a builder had opened up, was going to open up some lots. Uh, so, so a new part of their development and uh, they're taking bids over the internet. Like you're bidding now, um, you're, you're now competing for those lots like you do because people are getting beat out for homes, for existing homes. It's it's the same thing now there. And she said that um, the last time that they opened something up, I think it was in November, they had people camping out for three days to get on the list. And, and she's from California. So she was like, oh yeah, this is normal. But no one in Texas thinks that's normal, you know? And so I would, I would love to know what you think about Austin specifically. Yeah, I, I, like I said, in the top five in terms of single-family building, uh, if you look at the, the amount of multifamily development that's taken place in Austin, and it is that reflection of both, you know, relatively greater housing affordability than, say, some of the uh, California markets, uh, and I think we're seeing that interplay between households relocating and then businesses chasing households and households chasing businesses. That you're going to see some of these employers locate to a market like Austin. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's going to occur. And I think it's going to occur in a lot of markets. The stories won't be as big with such high profile company names as you see in Austin, but you're going to see markets get a second look from employers. And I mentioned before the Midwest is a great example. Now, they're going to look at, at markets like Columbus, Ohio and Kansas City because of affordability conditions for their workers. And I, I think that's going to result in some movement 
of both uh, of household level activity and business activity here over the next few years. It's it's such a changed landscape. Um, really interesting. My husband's from Kansas City. and We've visited there many times and I would not have thought, and I love Kansas City, but it's just interesting to see that just take off. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a Midwesterner, so I'm, I'm partly talking the you know, markets I know really well. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's going to be an important lesson for local policymakers, which is if you want that business activity to come and the growth in the home base, you have to allow your housing supply to increase. So the concern is, and you mentioned this with me, you know, some of Texas markets, if policymakers start to say, let's slow down some of this growth, you're essentially undercutting the advantage that's causing that, that growth to take place in the first place. It is such a push and pull. It's going to be really interesting. So Robert, tell me, what are you seeing in the whole build to rent? Yeah, this is kind of a really interesting place. So we talked about the fact that people need more home size, that consumer preferences have moved to single family. But of course, we know not everyone can afford to buy a home, you know, whether it's the down payment requirement, which of course, is getting some some policy looks in terms of, of the Biden uh, tax credit. But, you know, for a lot of people that want that single family home, renting is a legitimate and, and a good option. So right now we're seeing about four and a half percent of single family starts are built for rent. Probably another two percent of single family starts are sold to an investor for rental purposes. So about six and a half percent. And I think that share is going to go up over the course of 2021 and 2022. You see capital moving in this space and we know the demand is there. So that's going to be something to watch over the next year or two to see if that sector, uh, you know, posts some gains in terms of market share. And it's going to be really interesting to see the kinds of single family rental units built and developed. A lot of them tend to be townhouses, uh, but uh, the geography here is going to be really interesting. And I think that's another way that we can add housing uh, to uh, the overall economy. So I know that there are now um, whole um, build to rent communities, right? So it's not just like they're coming into a community and, but like a whole community plan for that. What does that look like? Yeah. So you do have master plan communities and you know, traditionally single family built for rent, you know, kind of uh, one-off type projects or, you know, small little development. But now you're talking about master plan communities that have the amenities you would expect, you know, that tended to be concentrated like an apartment building but it's in a single family type uh, neighborhood. And so that is an option, particularly if you're gonna move to an area and you're not gonna stay longer than you know three or four years, single family rental is a great option. So one of the things that we know that the single family market is tight in terms of resale inventory is because people, when they move, have chosen to rent out the, the one off type house that's in a neighborhood. But this, this development, this intentional development of single family rental really is a change that's coming. And I do think the market share is going to grow. Uh, we'll definitely be watching that. It's just been an interesting development over the last couple of years. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, we're wrapping up. I wanted to ask you one last question, which is what are you excited about as you look at this next year? You guys are front and center now um, and you have been for a long time. But but I just think that, as you said, the spotlight's been on housing the last year. What are you looking at over the next year that really excites you? Yeah, I mean, the innovation we talked about, I think, is, is an area. I think from an analytics point of view, it'll be watching some of this demand roll back from exurban type markets more into the me uh, medium density neighborhoods. So one one little hint of, of a data point that was really interesting at the end of last year was we had in the fourth quarter of 2020, the best quarter for townhouse construction in a year and a half. And that would be consistent with the idea of some of these more medium density neighborhoods starting to see demand go up. So. I think, you know, in terms of the home building industry, it's housing equals jobs. 
And so with continued growth in, in single family construction, multifamily construction, we will see the labor force of that industry or our industry continue to grow. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we were leading the economy uh, last year and now we'll, we'll see some of the benefits uh, play out. Well, so glad to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your insights. We'll have you on again in a couple months because things are changing fast and we love having your perspective on that. So thank you so much, Robert. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where your host, Tracy Velt, managing editor of Real Trends, interviews the brightest minds in real estate. Brokerage leaders, top agents, team leaders, and industry experts share their success secrets, trends, and lessons learned navigating this ever-changing industry. To listen, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out Housing Wire Daily, a podcast dedicated to the hottest news stories coming out of the Housing Wire newsroom each and every day. The podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next week.